five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. Impulse Space is a new startup focused on space logistics, including last mile payload delivery. The company has a first mission scheduled for fall this year and also already announced a private mission to Mars jointly with Relativity last year. We touch upon all of this and a lot more in my conversation with their COO, Barry Matsumari. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey space enthusiasts very excited about today's episode our guest is barry matsumaro he's the coo of impulse space welcome barry hi good morning and good morning to you barry we usually kick off um, asking our guests if they're space entrepreneurs to give us the elevator pitch on the company could you do that for us please Sure. Impulse Space is a company that was established to take advantage of the maturity of what's happening in, in space, the amount of traffic that's there, the amount of uh, payloads that are going to space needs much more in the way of managed logistics, just as on Earth. And we're doing the same thing in space. Okay. And can you talk us a little bit, because I think I know what you guys are doing, but for the for the for the audience, sort of a little bit about how you're accomplishing that those logistics, yes. like what your current call it like your system architecture is, your mission architecture? Understand, understand. So so at a very high level, I talked about space logistics. And then the next level down is, okay, how does one make space logistics work? And that is uh, one in space, people go to different orbits and those orbits need to be surface, uh, serviced. And so uh, whether one goes to LEO, low earth orbit, or geostationary, geo, or beyond, even to Mars, uh, one needs different vehicles, different energies to accomplish that. And that's what Impulse Space has done, is develop the vehicles and the services that can allow uh, those, those missions to be accomplished. But so typically, at least at the moment, and we're going to talk about your vision of where this is all going for sure uh, later on. At the moment, it seems to be people operate primarily in Leo and then historically, of course, in Geo as well. And I guess 
the main logistical need appears to be at the moment that you now have all of these SpaceX rideshare missions like Transporter H just launched a few days ago. People mm -hmm. get kicked out, everybody jointly at a certain point, and then they have to reach the operational orbit. Is that sort of, right. would that be the first thing you guys are targeting? So the first mission we have in October is a LEO mission on a rideshare that happens to be on Transporter 9. Okay. And it does exactly that. It will go off and at uh, SpaceX's LEO orbit that they will then uh, have all of the payloads on Transporter 9 uh, uh, separate. And then from there, we'll go to our final destinations. In our case, uh, we do have some customers, but the main mission of that, of that uh, vehicle is to exercise the capabilities. What that means is we're going to do a highly elliptical orbit going even beyond uh, the uh, very high in LEO so that we can test the electronics in uh, about 1,200 kilometers in very high altitude. We're also gonna go very low down to 300 and then practice some other maneuvers. Uh, again, we have a very highly maneuverable vehicle and wanna demonstrate what that maneuverability is. And then in terms of, I guess this is what sometimes is called a, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, like a space tug or an OTV, an orbital transfer vehicle, right? I mean, people have various names for it. Yes. And I've seen at the moment the, the, the architecture that people like, you know, spaceflight, uh, deorbit, uh, and Luca was on also on this podcast um, a while ago, are using is basically, you know, you send these vehicles up there with the, call it the, the, the customer payloads, and then they distribute them and then sort of they are, they're done, right? I've seen alternative yes. proposals for vehicles which kind of stay in orbit and then kind of go back and forth. It's like, what, what are you guys targeting to do? Uh, I'll start with kind of the bigger picture, putting yeah. impulse to the side and just thinking about the maturation of what space will be. And that's uh, the paradigm of a launch vehicle and a satellite. And that's the way space wor or works. It's changing a little bit. Uh, one is because the orbits they need to go to. And secondly, the functionality of what a space vehicle can do. Uh, yes. Yes, there still be satellites uh, and and so transponders or imagers or whatever. The question is, how much bus does a space uh, satellite need to have versus how much capability does a transfer vehicle have? And one notion is, is in fact uh, an asset in space, possibly just a highly propulsive satellite? Can one put on a transfer vehicle a number of of sensors and other capabilities so that it's dual purpose while it's idly in space waiting for the next mission. So again, the paradigm of, of flexibility in space is much broader. And that's certainly the way that Impulse Space is looking at it. Okay, that was actually going to be one of my questions, because again, one, one other guest a while ago was my friend Luca Rossettini from The Orbit. And that's clearly, I mean, as I think it's public knowledge, and he's he actually even said on the episode, that's clearly kind of a direction where they're going, where they're saying like, well, it's silly to just have uh, what he called like spent OTVs up there yes. and not do anything with them. We might as well host stuff. And so you guys yes. are, it sounds like you guys are looking at the same type of strategy. It's, it's, it's just a natural outcome. That's why I didn't want to just talk about impulse and just say it's a natural outcome. One of the one of the things I always like to do is look at earth metaphors and see, do they apply in space? Uh, I said another way, if a principle doesn't work on earth, it may, may not necessarily work in space then. So the notion of tow, truck, tow trucks is a very known uh, uh, metaphor on earth, uh, a known practice on earth. And in space, yes, we will have tow trucks. The question is, when the tow truck is idling on Earth, um, what does it do more that has more utility? Not much. But in space, uh, as as you pointed out, you can put other payloads on and do other missions 
while you're waiting. For example, space situational awareness, easy to do while you're already in space. And one other notion is we announced a couple of weeks ago that we're working with OrbitFab on in-space propellant loading, uh, refueling of satellites. Well, that's certainly a step towards refueling other vehicles, especially transfer vehicles on orbit so that one doesn't incur the launch costs. You just start reusing that same vehicle. Okay, um, so why we're talking about sort of this vision for let's call it in space in space servicing, right? Because now you started talking about refueling, right? And this is all going. Sorry, going way ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is fine. We're going to be jumping around here, but that that is just fine. You know, when we before the episode, I was mentioning how this is a very casual chat where we we are allowed to jump around. We're not following a rigid outline here. So, what is your ultimate vision of where this in space servicing? market and architecture might go. And and I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. It's sort of at the moment, we're basically putting satellites up there and we're pretty much just sort of like one time use, right? I mean, with a few exceptions that we've seen in geo, right? With the the, the, the mission extension vehicle, lifetimes getting expen mm -hmm. uh, extended, but those are extremely expensive assets and sort of the economics may make more sense. In Leo at the moment, you know, I haven't I can't claim to have crunched the numbers in detail, but it seems like, you know, uh, stuff is getting much cheaper to get up there. Satellites are getting much cheaper. You may just, I mean, this is a horrible thing to say, and people may actually blame me for this, but you, you may just want to throw stuff away anyway and replace them also because the payload becomes obsolete. So that's one vision, right? Another extreme vision, of course, is sort of like, well, that's stupid. We shouldn't throw stuff away. We should get to somewhere where we ha just have something like the equivalent of call them cell towers or something, platforms in orbit permanently. And we just advance our in-space capabilities, the servicing and transport logistic capabilities like you guys are doing, plus robotics, plus autonomy so much that we can just like keep swapping stuff out on those platforms. Yes. I don't know. Where, where yes. do you see, see things going and in, in which time frame? And how is Impulse helping with all of this? So it's difficult to make a generic statement about the, the vision of space because one has to look at the mission involved. If one is using transponders for communications, that has a different technology horizon than, let's say, Earth observation or uh, other kind of relay networks. Uh, just depends on the mission. In the case of transponders, over time, what's happened is transponder communications technology has been evolving. And so one can say, yes, there's been geostationary spacecraft that last 20 odd years. It's great, except one knows that at the end of lifetime of some of those transponders, their value on a cost per bit basis has decreased compared to newer transponders. And so technology, and we all know technology kind of doesn't wait for anybody. Mm. Technology is advancing. And so in the same vein, the technology in space will also advance. Notions of servers, of data farms in space is definitely becoming more and more popular. And one of the challenges that everybody says about a data farm is, is the computational power going to in memory is going to stay up with the needs of what's needed in space. And one answer is, uh, yes, it's probably going to be difficult. On the other hand, if one has space mobility, has transfer vehicles, has servicing, then the notion of swapping out data cards is very well within the capabilities of, of what that platform may have. So on a generic basis, it can't say yes, a satellite architecture is going to stay the same. It will very much depend. You you said something really interesting, and that is the notion, uh, and, and I'm all over this, is the notion of a mobile base station in space. On Earth, what do we do? We have fixed mobile base stations, and then we put mobile base stations for peak loading 
especially during uh, stadium events, some other popular event. And in space, we'll do the same thing. We'll have uh, those satellites that go and cover some part of the Earth uh, as peak loads occur. Uh, recently, Qatar had a World Cup and they had not only ground coverage, but they had space coverage. If one can move more satellites to have capacity over Qatar, actually, you you can really service, provide much broader service. There are certain regions, and I'm going on a bit here, but there are certain regions on Earth that have conflicts. As those conflicts appear, one wants either uh, imaging or sensing or comms just for that area for that period of time. One can do that once one one has agility or mobility in space. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic by itself. I've I recently had this debate with somebody, may have been with people at Spin Launch, where basically at the extreme, like you mentioned, remote sensing capabilities in conflict areas, like a space space launch costs and satellite costs really become really, really, really cheap, even cheaper than now. I mean, at extreme, you could just have temporary constellations and just send them to VLU even, which is better for observation and just don't care whether they decay in like a few yes. weeks. And and actually the notion of if a satellite, I talked about satellites and the paradigm, if the satellites are just focused on station keeping and they use electric propulsion for that, they are very, very efficient about the use of their propellant and they can stay up for long periods of time. There's no need to do a relaunch, just have the assets already there. Yeah. Okay. But this is, of course, precisely coming back to, to Impulse. This is precisely not what you guys are doing. You guys, my understanding, is our a high delta V vehicle. Well, currently we're chemical propulsion, and uh, what we found is, in, in the case of transfer, people generally, customers generally, do not like to wait. They like to get their payloads in the positions they want them in. In the case of station keeping, once they're on orbit, yes, uh, they'll use something like EP. That just makes perfect sense. Yeah, and people don't like to wait because Time is money, right? You want to get to your operations. Exactly. Start, start generating revenues, right? So yeah. I'm also going to ask you this question because it's interesting. Um, I mean, A, it's related to what you guys are doing and B, it's just uh, one of the big debates generally in space, which is sort of the debate about the economic viability of small, medium-sized launchers, right? Because as you know, if you go to like your pretty much any small launch company, even like a smaller, medium-sized launch company, they'll, they all tell you the same story that their right of existence is that they get you to the right place at the right time, right? But now, of course, there's this emerging alternative. No, emerging, not emerging alternative. It's an existing alternative that you go to SpaceX on a transporter mm -hmm. and then you go to people like Impulse. Yes. And you kind of go to the same place, literally go to the same place. And the question is, so how do you see this evolving? Do you see a role for these small launchers? Do you think the combination of SpaceX or something like Impulse is just going to make most of that unnecessary? <laughs> So first of all, I'm going to uh, go into this area carefully because uh, absolutely, I think I think there's business for everyone. Yeah. And and the way to look at it though is it's not as if one size fits all. Uh, there are small sats, uh, cube sats, micro sats. Uh, the variation is large. That part is a guess. On top of that, not everybody's constellation is the same. Some people have constellations of tens, uh, ten tens of satellites. Some people have hundreds, some people have thousands. The, depending on what you want us to deploy in what time frame, it may make may make more sense not to go on a big ride share, but in fact, use a smaller vehicle to de deploy a constellation uh, that it actually is more economical. Uh, there are vehicles coming like Starship that do 100 to 150 metric tons. And how does a vehicle that large work with uh, CubeSats? 
this is this is the thing is not one size will fit all in space. So generally speaking, there's a place for for almost everyone. The real question is, can you get to space? Can you reliably launch? That's the metric everyone really looks at, because at the end of the day, if one can't do that, it doesn't it doesn't matter what size you are. Yeah, no, fair enough. So coming back to the broader OTV market, I mean, as we've mentioned a few times, there's a, a number of OTVs in the market right now, you know, like like the Orbit, uh, Momentus, Spaceflight, and so forth. And there's, um, mm -hmm. I mean, as you probably know, my my day job when I'm not podcasting is having a space VC fund. So we're, we've also seen quite a few other um, OTV companies at various stages, some pre-seed all the way to, you know, Series AB. Uh, we have, yes. even from sitting in Europe, there's quite a few, to be honest. Do you guys yes. give us like your view of the lay of the land and what you just said, sort of like there's space and a role for everyone. Do you see see it similar here that there's a role for several OTV kind company, OTV type companies? And how is there any sort of sensible segmentation of the market? How you think about segmenting the market? So first of all, um, the reality is uh, in launch, there are uh, I don't know what number you use, but generally there are quite a large number of launch companies. But at the end of the day, uh, one has to look at only one thing, and that's Who's actually going to space? Mm. And in the OTV market, it will be the same point. There are a large number of companies out there. The real question is, who is reliably going to space? And that is the first metric of who's going to be there playing and who's going to be there providing services for our customers. With that said, most everyone we know is at lower energy levels than what we provide in the vehicles that we offer. And that's fine. Uh, they are great for Leo to Leo kind of transfers. But if one is looking at something like Leo, Leo to high Leo, um, large LTAN uh, changes, large plane uh, inclination changes or plane changes. Uh, if one is looking at going from Leo to geostationary or to cislunar or uh, any other high energy orbit, that starts discriminating quickly uh, us uh, in pulse space versus other companies. And so who do you see as sort of the primary users and use cases for some of the things like the really high Delta V use, uh, uh, use cases you just described, right? Because again, at the moment, of course, most of it is sort of like uh, going from where Falcon 9 kicks you out on the ride share to your operational mm -hmm. orbit. And so far, whenever I've heard about higher Delta V requirements, a lot of it has been sort of like military driven interest like is that also what you're seeing or do you actually see also commercial use cases for this it's it's a great question because uh what what uh one has to do is segment what the market is and uh the maturity of that part of the market the notion of going to geostationary orbit is actually an existing market mm. all kinds of people do it all the time the paradigm is everyone pretty much goes to a geostationary transfer orbit gto they don't go to GeoDirect unless they're using extremely high energy launch vehicle. That equals a very expensive ride. If one can go direct to Geo, bypass GTO, and save all that orbit transfer time, because that's, as we discussed earlier, that's money. That's money, that revenue that one is not getting for their payload right now, uh, then that's and do it as a cost effective service so that net net it's cheaper to go to geo direct than it is to go through a gto and then a final orbit that's a pretty significant value proposition for the existing geo market again it exists now it's not like you have to create that market the other side is where most of our competitors are at is creating 
the services that are done for lower energy uh, orbit transfers. Um, last mile service is kind of the term used for what most everyone is doing. And that's great. It's a service that's starting. Lots of people are doing. We plan to do some of that. But some of the services such as uh, on-orbit servicing or debris mitigation or uh, space situation awareness, some of those are still burgeoning, particularly on debris, debris remediation. We want that to happen now. We need it now. But unfortunately, the funding sources for that are still very limited. Yeah, I was going to ask you about we're talking about active debris removal, right? And, right? and of course, there's a you know sort of small number of companies focused on that. Like I'm sitting in Switzerland as we're recording this. So clear space, yes. of course, my friends yes. are not very well. Yes. You got Ast Astroscale, which also originally started right. with that. And sort of um, if you guys are also looking at that, I'm going to ask you the same question I kind of annoyingly asked to ClearSpace and Astroscale all the time, which is like, well, what's the revenue model? Who's paying for this and why? Yes. And the answer is that right now, uh, there is no one really paying for it. I know ESA has funded ClearSpace to do some missions, but the fact is that uh, until larger funding sources show up, uh, the ability for us to spend a lot of time on that mission is pretty limited. Yeah. And so actually, let's segue over... I'm jumping around a bit here, but uh, you just mm -hmm. reminded me we were talking about the funding. You have announced a very intriguing mission together with Relativity, which is literally going to, to Mars. Right. So this is, of course, you know, incredibly ambitious. I mean, this is something that only sovereign and, 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 and very powerful sovereign states have done mm -hmm. so far. I mean, going to the surface anyway. Correct. Uh, sometimes they have failed, um, especially, I mean, going to orbit is difficult enough. Landing for a variety of reasons is really difficult. Mm -hmm. you, you and the relativity, you guys have decided to do that. And so like, why? I can kind of see this, okay, this is a great marketing, great testing, great sort of demonstration of your capabilities. But yeah, what was the original thinking there? there there's two parts to it. One, one is certainly the boldness that you're alluding to, that we want to be able to show that we're going to take on missions that are challenging. And yes, we could have gone to the lunar surface, but we chose to take a much more challenging mission and and go forward with that that's part one the second part though is in fact we are not going to reinvent the wheel in the sense of the mission that we're following is very very close to what was done on the nasa inside mission uh, in terms of the cruise vehicle in terms of the uh, portions of the vehicle that do a re-entry into the mars atmosphere because they do have an atmosphere so one needs a heat shield in terms of using a parachute, parachute to lower uh, lower the speed going down to the surface, and then doing propulsive landing, all of that is um, uh, is very much following the footsteps of what was already learned on inside. And in fact, we do talk to NASA exactly about what parameters, uh, how they did that inside mission. So they've been great in supporting us on that. Uh, the mission itself, yes, uh, we're not trying to reinvent some technology. We're just trying to reuse what has already been successful. Okay, and we're going to talk about your tech stack in more detail in a minute, but sort of staying with Mars. I mean, even if you're using established technology, again, it's really not a trivial mission at all. And sort of when, when 
governments do it, you know, you're talking somewhere between hundreds of millions to dollars, depending how complex it is to, to literally billions of dollars. So mm -hmm. also this is obviously, again, I can see a variety of reasons why you want to do this. Um, so like demonstrating your capabilities to customers of that. This is going to be very expensive as well. So how are you guys, if you, if, if you are liberty to talk about this, how are you guys financing this? I mean, because if I was a, you know, if I put on my head as a venture investor, I'm like, okay, I can see the, the upsides of this, but like, I wouldn't want you to spend like hundreds of millions of dollars of this. So the money has to come from somewhere, right? Would it be like grants or would you try to like sell payloads on this or all of the above or? So first of all, uh, we are a commercial company. We're not a government. And uh, just as SpaceX, and I'm, I'm a former SpaceX person, yeah. just as SpaceX took and made commercial launch, uh, certainly servicing the space station, a very efficient, cost-effective process. Uh, we're going to do the same thing in, in our mission to Mars. That said, we also fully intend that we will have a payload on the first mission in 26. And every 2.2 years, we plan to go back and provide uh, a, a scheduled service to Mars, uh, if you will, a roadway to Mars, commercial roadway to Mars. Why is that important? One is we do see that there are entities that want to be able to go to Mars, maybe for science purposes, uh, and particularly for uh, government governments around the world that want to have a presence in space, want to do something substantial in space, yet can't have the means uh, to do that transport part of part of the business, which we can. And so, uh, consider any sovereign entity that goes, "Wow, I can kind of leapfrog." everybody uh, in the Mars mission by being able to take advantage of this 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 highway to Mars. Uh, that's one part. Secondly, there are actually commercial entities that want to take advantage, probably more for marketing purposes, of that mission to Mars and also uh, take advantage of their presence by having somewhat very exclusive uh, presence on a planet that very few people have actually occupied. And is there, I mean, there's obviously, you mentioned the moon before, there's obviously something similar going on with the moon already, right? Where some mm -hmm. of the uh, companies uh, that are in what's called CLIPS, the commercial lunar payload services, right. have been selling um, payload space, including to yes. commercial customers. So I guess it would be a very similar concept. And so, by the way, so I think it's reasonably well known publicly that on, at least on some of the CLIPS companies, the price, the quoted price to lunar surface is something like a million dollars one kilogram of mass have you guys thought at all about do you have any number have you given any number for like the uh, the price uh, we certainly have and we definitely are not talking about it publicly <laughs> yet we're talking privately but not publicly thank you okay well it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see both that and then you who some of your first mm -hmm. customers um will be so going to mars also has um we're going to segue into technology, some special technological challenges, of course, in terms of the uh, interplanetary environment, radiation and so forth. Is that also you guys are using basically established technology for that? Actually, uh, again, it's been done before. So um, it's not something that we're going, oh, we have no idea about the environments. Actually, things like radiation are better on Mars uh, than than something around Earth orbit. So that part's good. Uh, the one part that is different about Mars, Mars is further away from the sun. So things like solar solar efficiency uh, we have to account for uh, in order to get energy um, yeah there's dust uh, there's rocks there's other things so all of those have to be accounted for but again all of that is something that's already known that have been that has been addressed in prior missions okay and so coming back to the technology that you guys are 
will, will have on your first vehicle. Can you talk us sort of like the, the key parts of the technology stack and maybe, you know, where you see something that differentiates um, impulse space from, from other OTVs? I guess you guys have a very strong propulsion heritage, for example, coming out of... <laughs> Uh, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> all space vehicles, uh, the designs start with the propulsion system. And that's a not only is it the most critical subsystem, it's also the most expensive. And so having very good expertise on propulsion is kind of a linchpin to the rest of the vehicle. And uh, it is a testament to us that people have looked at us and said, you do have the best propulsion team in the business. I mean, the vast announcement that took place, uh, there's a reason that people are selecting us to look at propulsion is because we are very, uh, the team is very good at it. So that's still very interesting, but I mean, it really is a testament to your team's reputation, right? Because as you know, very often in the space sector, people would just go with something that has in-space heritage Correct. already, which you guys don't have yet, right? But they're just saying, well, Correct. those guys are so good, we're just trusting it will work. It's it's uh, the trust is based uh, on knowledge and capability of the team that has already demonstrated. I mean, having Tom Mueller as a CEO, that's one thing. Having Tom Mueller as the head of propulsion at Impulse, excuse me, at SpaceX is completely different. I mean, uh, Elon and he being uh, being the founders of SpaceX. Uh, that's that is no mean feat to have been there and then brought propulsion forward this far. And is there anything particularly noteworthy about the propulsion system that you guys are developing or have developed for impulse space? Great question. In terms of the propellant. Yeah. One, or, one, of, one of the things that early on we realized is we wanted to be able to work with the propellants as easily as possible, yet get the uh, specific impulse, the performance out of out of those uh, that propulsion system, and work with chemical because we wanted to have that pro that propulsive capability. And so we selected, uh, actually, Tom selected ethane and nitrous oxide as the combinations. Now, the challenge of working with those that kind of bipropellant is uh, one area, and that's it's great, except you have to start it reliably every time. And that's one of the things that we have definitely mastered well is the reliable capabilities to start start the engines uh, every time for the missions they have in space. And, and those propellants, you, the bipropellant you mentioned there, if I'm not mistaken, that's also something people would generally qualify as a uh, a new green green fuel, right? It's like non-toxic, easy handling. Non and he's and relatively yes. easy to handle as well, right on the ground. Yeah, I, I should explain that uh, nitrous oxide is well known uh, and traditionally not anymore, but traditionally in the past, the dentists used to use them with their oh, patients right. a long time ago. I mean, obviously, obviously, it's something that uh, humans can be around. And then ethane is a chemical variant of propane. And all of us use propane in our barbecues and other areas. So again, we've all been exposed to propane. And neither of these elements, if they happen to leak, will cause harm to humans. And are you designing this already to so that your vehicles are, you mentioned some sort of partnership with OrbitFab that, that you'll be able to refuel your vehicles in orbit? In our case, in the near term, very near term, no, uh, that won't be the case. But uh, in the future, yes, absolutely. We intend that we'll, we'll be refueling our vehicles in space. I mean, okay. from a cost per kilogram, and I'm not sure what the metric everyone wants to use, from a cost per kilogram per kilometer 
kind of efficiency, uh, being on orbit and reusing the stage is the best way to do that. Gotcha. And so by the way, how big is your current vehicle? What's the payload capacity there? We, the metrics we like to use is it can vary depending on the payload mass, but let's say 300 kilograms with about uh, 600 meters per second. Okay. Okay. Got you. Okay. And so we talked about propulsion for the rest of the technology stack, other subsystems. Is that, would you characterize it as fairly off the shelf or is there something else that you guys have so specifically developed for your vehicle? Yes. So, so one of the things that um, the team and we have a, a large number of SpaceX folks here, uh, uh, the team uh, brought over and Tom wanted to do is be vertically integrated in the supply chain. So whether it's the propulsion system, the propellant tanks, the avionics, software, structures, uh, it is all pretty much uh, developed uh, within Impulse Space. If one visits us in our, uh, in our production facility in Redondo Beach, they'll see all the equipment to uh, enable that vertical production, including additive manufacturing with metal. And is that sort of for the same reasons that one things that SpaceX is doing it, which is A, to ensure supply chain um, security and B, to bring down the cost and complexity? Uh, the, there, there's a multitude of reasons, as you suggest. I think number one is quality. By controlling the process, we know the quality of the part. One example is the solenoids, solenoid valves we use in the system. We developed, designed, developed, and produced ourselves. Why? Because that is some one of the most, it's a small part, but one of the most critical parts in the entire propulsion system. And anybody that's worked with uh, space vehicles knows uh, valves are critical. Uh, that's one aspect. But but uh, so quality is uh, key. Uh, it's always less expensive when we do it ourselves. All the brackets, uh, structures that we build, we build ourselves at a fraction of what it would cost if we outsource. And the last one is, is definitely things like propellant tanks. When we wind our own COPV tanks, we save so much time and, uh, and we can do rapid design by being able to do it ourselves. And so you guys are going to be, as we discussed, um, single use for the moment, right? So, and you're flying for the first time on Transporter 9 in October. And then how do you guys see, how do you envision the cadence going forward? Like how many of these vehicles do you envision flying in what time frame? And do you have the well, production, what's your production capacity for that at yeah. the moment? In the future? We'll, we'll see what the market uh, does. Right now, our plan is at least two of our small vehicles. We call it Mira. Uh, M-I-R-A. Uh, we plan to have at least two of those a year. Uh, and again, depends on what the market's doing and where they're going, uh, then we may increase. Uh, for example, we are on uh, Transporter 11 and Transporter 12. So we've already gone ahead and planned for that in 24. And and uh, we mentioned the Orbit Fab mission. That's going on off in 25. And again, it will use uh, the Mira vehicle to be able to do that hosting in GEO, not LEO, but in GEO. That's a really big point. Because one of the things that we also see is that the GEO business and the flexibility, agility of platforms in GEO, that's going to increase. That's one point. Uh, the second one is for our large stage. Uh, we call it Helios. Uh, for Helios, we plan that we will introduce that vehicle in early 26 as a demonstration flight and following that quickly 
is going to be a, a commercial flight to direct to GEO, to deliver some satellites directly to GEO. And that one, we expect that we will announce before the end of the year, our first customers. So Helios is a larger platform. Yes. Mira. Okay. So what, what kind of size are we talking about? So Mira was 300 kilograms um, mass. 300 kilograms, about 600 meters per second. Yeah. This one, uh, the large stage will, and this is again, direct to geo, need a lot, of, a lot of energy to do that. That's roughly five metric tons, about 5,000 meters per second. It's wow. very large. Okay. Yeah, that's large and powerful. So is that still yes. going to be a uh, designed as a, a um, primarily a, a Falcon compatible vehicle? Or are you guys already yes. sort of looking towards Starship? Absolutely. It'll fit inside the fairing of the Falcon or okay. Terranar or uh, UL, uh, Vulcan or Ariane 6. All of those launch vehicle agnostic. Yes, but how you guys? How do you guys are think? How do you guys are thinking since you're coming out of SpaceX about Starship and how that inter integrates into your plans? It's 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 a great vehicle for getting to low Earth orbit very cost effectively. And uh, again, the model we like is use uh, Leo as a staging orbit. And then from there, take transfer vehicles and go to the final destination, whether it's somewhere in Leo, somewhere in Mio. Something. I mean, one of the things that we want to do is get the cost per kilogram per kilometer low enough that people not only go to Geo, but they look at Mio and go, that's actually an orbit that hasn't been populated yeah. much and we can take advantage of if you can get the price to get there low enough. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like, I think this is, uh, um, comparison has been, has been beaten to death, but it's sort of like Starship is a container ship and you guys are some sort of, um, truck, I guess. Right. Absolutely. I think, I think that earth metaphor is spot on because when a container ship shows up, let's say at the port of Long Beach with thousands of containers on the other side, on the land side, there's not a great big truck to offload those containers to. There's a myriad of 18 wheelers. Actually, it's more complicated than that because it depends. If it's a, a short load, it may be a smaller vehicle. If it's a long haul, it's a bigger vehicle. Again, that notion of sizing, depending on what the mission is, is the same paradigm we'll use in space. And that also, I mean, the reason that logistics system works very well on Earth is that we have developed a lot of standards, right? Like standard size mm -hmm. containers and things like that. Mm -hmm. yes. Do you see the same thing evolving in space? Have we done this already? Is there a lot left to do? What, yeah. in, in many ways, some standards have already been developed. Separation rings and the dimensions on them, depending on whether it's a CubeSat, SmallSat, LargeSat, uh, that's already been standardized. Uh, I know in the case of Starship, they're looking at methods of doing standardization of deployment from Starship. But uh, Transporter, there's definitely standardization on how you do ride share. Uh, so everybody, uh, and they're pretty much using the same kind of concepts around uh, separation uh, systems and dimensions. So in, in many ways, that, that standardization has already occurred. And so a few minutes ago, you mentioned the deal that was just announced with Vast. Vast, a US-based uh, company developing yes. um, uh, a space station or space stations. Correct. Very exciting project. Oh, Can yeah. you just give us the, uh, the sort of the TLDR, the summary of, of that deal and how you guys come in there? Uh, it's it's pretty simple one. Uh, first of all, for those that aren't aware, uh, Vast Space is, is putting up a commercial space station and they're really going very aggressively to be up there ahead of everyone. And what they'll do is they will go up first, uh, take the Haven 1 
uh, space station, uh, put it on orbit with a Falcon 9 uh, rocket. And then following that, they'll have astronauts on a drag in a dragon to go up again, another Falcon 9 later. And those astronauts will dock with Haven 1 and then go and use that facility. And because they are the only people at that facility, they really have a lot of freedom to work in space, to have room in space, to do things in space. One of the things that uh, we, we, we know the folks over at, at Vast, uh, they literally, uh, when we were in El, El Segundo, we've now moved, but we were literally next door to each other uh, in El Segundo. And we, we got to know the folks and they definitely got to know who we are. They looked at our propulsion team and uh, desired that, in fact, uh, take advantage of the expertise that we had and actually the propulsion systems we've already developed. And so that's what's going to be used in, in the vast uh, Haven 1 space station is our propulsion system for reaction control system and the deorbit system. Okay, so this is a deal not about your vehicle. This is specifically about your propulsion yes. system. It's, it's one of those times where we looked at uh, the opportunity. It's, it's a very great vision, and we want to support that vision. And also, uh, we get a chance to do the full-up propulsion system, not only our thrusters, but also propellant tanks, feed lines, control systems, accumulate the whole nine yards of things that we can put together for them. And it, it just made perfect sense. Okay. That's, that's a really very exciting mission and, you know, um, good luck to, to vast and to you guys and pulling this off in, in this time frame, which is also very ambitious, yes. but very exciting yeah. if that, if that happens, but speaking oh. of vision, I mean, since, you know, you've been in the sector for a while and, um, obviously at SpaceX, a very visionary place and also for, for impulse space to make money, you need other people in space to make money. You need like your ideal scenario, frankly, for all of us is a bustling space economy, right? Yes, yes. What's your vision? Where do you see this going? Where do you, where do you see the space economy going and pick the right time frame? I don't know, it's five or 10 years or 15 years. Like where do you see the big use cases where people actually will make money in space? Okay. I'd first clarify, I, I talked about the market and there's an existing market for geo, and mm -hmm. so it's not as if we're going, well, let's see how it comes. It's already there and we're going to take advantage of it mm -hmm. on on the transfer side for missions, last mile, uh, deorbit, uh, repositioning, um, a space situation awareness, all these. Yeah, these are going to come. It will take a little bit more time depending on which sector. And uh, again, if one believes that the logistics in space models what has to happen on Earth that already exists on Earth and will have to happen in space, then uh, that's going to happen within uh, easily within the next five, 10 years. Uh, and we're already seeing that growth occur. There, there are a number of companies out there. And so, as I said earlier in this podcast, whoever is actually in space flying reliably, that's who's going to do well in the sector. And so if you take this um, even beyond impulse space and space logistics and all of this. Yes. What what other areas, if any, are you excited about in the developing space economy? Oh, I see. Got it. Uh, <laughs> there, there's some ambitious, uh, yet, yet doable missions that are in mind. For example, uh, there are a couple of companies now that are doing asteroid uh, exploration, mining, yep. Uh, and they've got some plans that are actually realistic. Uh, so uh, that accomplishing that mission is pretty spectacular. Certainly everything that's being done on the moon 
is um, uh, going to be able to take advantage of resources on the moon. And in our case, we really can't open up Mars uh, to be able to, to use more broadly. And hopefully what we can do is provide some, uh, some preliminary work that helps advance others to be able to use and and uh, get humans to Mars at some point. Yeah, and for the listeners, for those who haven't seen it yet, um, asteroid mining. Uh, Matt Gialik, founder of co-founder yes. of um, Astroforge, was on this podcast a few episodes ago. So he's gonna he's going into detail of all of the things that Barry just uh, alluded to. Yes. Yeah. No, Matt and I know each other very well. Great. Okay. So speaking of of the vision, so we're talking about the sector at large, but. Where do you and Tom and the team, where do you see, where would you like to see impulse space in, let's say, 10 years? Oh, in 10 years, we're just going to be taking advantage of, of the economy, space economy that's growing. And uh, the, the notion of geo-direct missions is going to become a norm. Uh, once people see the ability to bypass the GTO transfer uh, transfer period, uh, they're going to really start taking advantage of it. We're certainly going to take advantage of in geo. A number of companies have already started thinking about smaller satellites in geo and not necessarily uh, the large sats. And, and definitely people will look at high MEO and go, we can get there now economically. Let's think about cost constellations in high MEO. So that, that all I can see. And then, so, and by then we're starting to develop that commercial highway to Mars. Okay. Understood. And one thing I forgot to ask you when you were talking about your SpaceX background, but I'm going to ask it now because I'm interested is, so you obviously at the leadership level, you have very strong SpaceX heritage between just between you and Tom. And how would you characterize that SpaceX DNA or culture or whatever you want to call it? And then to what extent have you carried it over Yes. Impulse space. And then maybe if there's something specific you didn't carry over, that would also be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think number one is the focus on execution, the focus on on uh, moving quickly and learning quickly from anything that one does. I mean, one of the things that we're doing right now is making sure that the vehicle that's going to space or transporter nine, uh, that mirror vehicle, uh, we are we are we want to do. We have been doing as much testing as possible to find any errors, any designs that we can fix right now, because the thing one can't do, as all know, you can't fix it once it's in space. So finding finding anything at all is actually a, a, a gift, something we want to do right now. Yeah, the, the part about uh, what don't we want, uh, I'm not sure how to answer that one, because um, it's difficult just to isolate characteristics. Uh, one can only just say, yes, we picked up some characteristics. I'm not sure what we didn't pick up, but. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And when speaking of the team, are you guys hiring at the moment? We have been aggressively hiring. Uh, the good news about us is uh, we have had really good access to talent. Uh, one of the things that makes our, our mission great is we are going to Mars. And there aren't very many companies that one can say, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a business person to actually support the Mars mission and, and literally walk into the factory and start touching assets that are going to be associated with the Mars mission. Yeah, I, I personally definitely think that that is one clear example <laughs> of something very smart SpaceX Elon has done that you basically took along, right? This is like 
putting this tremendous vision out there that just yes. attracts people beyond any sort of compensation compensation package. If one comes to our facility, they will see uh, several places where we put large uh, Mars photo images on walls so they can think about the mission that we're on. Okay. And since we're talking about Mars and for many people that still seems a bit futuristic sci-fi, we're going to sort of get into the typical closing questions. Um, and <laughs> as you know, Barry, the last question is going to be about your favorite sci-fi, but let me ask you one question before then, which is kind of sure. um, continuing on from the technology stack and everything else. So right now you guys are using very established technologies for all of the good reasons you explained. Is there something in the medium terms, like something say, um, newer, <laughs> more futuristic seeming you guys are already considering in the timeline. For example, there's some OTV providers out there who originally had visions of going towards nuclear, you know, propulsion, things like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I, I think one of the things that is part of this culture that we're talking about, um, is using technology, but it's actually proven technology uh, what we're not doing is innovating brand new technology. The reason is uh, one, if the second one brings uh, brand new innovations in, it uh, it delays the schedule, it increases risk, and it increases cost. All the things that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, totally fair enough. All right, science fiction, favorite science fiction. Uh, that one actually is kind of straightforward because it's The Martian. I mean, to have the reality of what it's like to be on Mars, because it's not just all roses. There are several realities about the environment of Mars that 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 movie brought to fore that before that, not many missions really went into kind of technical detail, if you will, to to describe how tough it is to be on Mars. And we absolutely understand it's not going to be easy, as you kind of alluded to that mission, even though it's been done before. It's not going to be straightforward yet. We will work to to make that mission happen, taking into account all the things that we have as challenges. I mean, simple things. Uh, there are plenty of rocks, big rocks on the planet. We will try not to land on a rock and uh, ha have a smooth landing. And that's where uh, there's lots of information available to provide us uh, foresight into where we're going. No, that's terrific and fully agree. If if I can throw in one that I recently rewatched on on when I was on a long flight, I rewatched 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh -huh. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, as I'm, I'm pretty much sure, pretty much maybe all of our listeners have watched this movie too. But it's a scene towards the beginning when the protagonist transfers from a from what clearly seems like a Leo station on Earth towards the yes. moon, which clearly he's using some sort of high Delta V transfer vehicle. So if you guys can make that happen, maybe in 10, 15, 20 years at Impulse Space, and please use the same 1960s sort of cool <laughs> design, that'd be fantastic. Yes. Well, right now we are pretty much sticking to payloads and humans are probably best set for other companies to address, but we love to be able to support, uh, be the logistics and and support for any human use mission. your propulsion systems at least yes maybe terrific mm -hmm. barry thank you so much for coming on it was very interesting and best of luck to impulse space and for thank your you. thanks for having me well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast if you like this podcast please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as itunes you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities 
in the space economy. Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.